about it, but it, we, we selected that title purposely to, to kind of challenge our thinking. And, and I, I'd like to, we're going to be in Joshua here in a minute, but I'd like to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because where we're th- what we're thinking about here is the whole issue of usefulness to the Master, our Lord Jesus. Now, one of the things that the Christian life is a, is a, is a great life. If, if you don't know that life, we, we would like to talk to you about it after the, the meeting's over because there's nothing like the Christian life. It's a life of adventure. It's a, it's a life that has hope in it. it it's a life of encouragement. And, and as we study the Bible, we find that, that the Lord has a purpose and a plan for each of us who are born again, for His children. He's left us here on earth for a reason. He's done everything that needs to occur to take us straight to be with Him in glory. But we're here. And we have a purpose. And one of the things the Apostle Paul, this is in his last letter that uh, we have preserved by the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 20 of 2 Timothy 2, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, from dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Sanctified and useful for the master. And so what we see here in this verse, and we see all through the Bible, and we'll see it in the book of Joshua this morning, is that there's, there's God's side of this, and there's, there's a human responsibility side to respond to God's side to this, isn't there? Because he says that we have a responsibility of cleansing ourselves. Now, there, the Bible will tell us that we can't do that by ourselves. But we participate in this. God has a purpose for your life, for each one of us. And He invites us to participate with Him in this purpose. And part of this purpose is being a vessel for honor, useful to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I often think about what it's going to be like when we go to see our Lord Jesus Christ in glory, either through death or the rapture. We're going to see Him face to face. And, and we're going to give an account, the Bible tells us, for what we've done with the time He's given to us, with the treasures He's given to us, with the talents He's given to us. And in some respects, while we're thankful we're going to glory, it's a solemn thing to think about, isn't it? It's sobering to think about. And, you know, I was talking to a friend recently, and she said, well, there, there won't be any tears. I said, no, 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 that, that's not what it, it says. There'll be, he will wipe away every tear. But if he's wiping away tears, then there's going to be some tears at first. And I think for myself, and I think all of us, in some respect, are going, when, when we... When we look back on our life from that perspective and we think about what we could have done for Him, and, now, and then it's too late. 
as far as in this life, in this body, in this place of opposition, that'll be gone. That'll be history. It'll be in the archive file, not in the active file anymore. And, and so the Lord would encourage us to participate with Him in the work that He's given to each one of us to do. And each one of us is unique. Each individual in this room has been specially prepared by God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit for a specific, particular mission, course, life, testimony for His glory. And, and really, that is what is being unfolded in the Old Testament beginning in the book of Joshua, all the way to the book of Esther. There are 12 books there. We call them the historical books. Some of them are pre-exilic, and some of them are post-exilic, being the Babylonian exile, what we're speaking about. But there are 12 books. So you have five books at the beginning, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then you have... If you want to think about the Old Testament, just think about fives and twelves. And so there was only two numbers you need to, need to remember because our Lord Jesus in Luke 24, 44, remember, he, he divides the Old Testament into three main categories, right? Remember, he's speaking after his resurrection to the disciples in the upper room and, and he's divided. So what are the three categories? Anybody remember? The law, the Psalms, the prophets. Good. And there are 17 books associated with the law. There are five books associated with the poetry or the Psalms. And then there are 17 books associated with the prophets. 17, 5, 17. And those two 17s can be divided into a 5 and a 12 and a 5 and a 12. That's why I said 5s and 12s. So when the Lord is dividing up the, the Old Testament Scriptures, he, He's speaking about the giving of the law, the first five books, and then the next 12 books how that is lived out in a concrete way in specific historical circumstances in the lives of people that are attempting to live for God. And so there are rich lessons here because these are real people. Their blood is red, like you and me. It's not green or some other. These are human beings that are dealing with life's struggles. They are in a place of opposition. Can you relate to that? And they've been given by the Lord all that they need for life and godliness. Especially through the scriptures of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the same he has for us on this side of the cross as well. Of course, you want to think about the poetic books. You've got Job through Song of Solomon. Those are five books right in the middle of the Bible. Those are what are called poetry, Hebrew poetry, not English poetry. It's different. It has a different form. It has a different structure. It doesn't rhyme like, like uh, English poetry does. But it's poetry nonetheless. And then you have the prophetic books, the five major prophets, and then the twelve, the minor prophets. And we looked at the minor prophets some years ago. Spent some time in a series there. So five and twelve and five, and then five and twelve again.
way to think about the entire record of the Old Testament. But let me ask you something. If you're a born-again Christian here this morning, do you want to be near to God? Is that something that's important to you? You know, someone told me a few years ago, each moment of every day, we as individual Christians are as near to God as we choose to be. So if we're not near to God, it's because we've chosen not to be. And there are a lot of things that can cause that. The Bible will address that. But if, you're, if you know that you're saved and you know that Jesus Christ suffered, sacrificed a great deal, an enormous, really an eternal kind of a sacrifice for your soul to save you and me. Do you want to please Him? Is, does it matter to you that, that, that He's happy with your life? Does it matter when you go to see Him that He will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant? Well, that's what the thoughts that we're challenging ourselves with in these series of studies in, in Joshua and with links to Ephesians because many have related Joshua and Ephesians in similar ways because Ephesians has the whole picture, the whole scope of the testimony of God for the church. Joshua is re revealing it in the sense of the children of Israel under the Old Covenant. But there are still lessons we can learn from the people under the Old Covenant. So let's go to Joshua chapter 1. Even before you turn there, there's a couple of verses I want to remind us of. You're probably familiar with this. In Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, God reveals to Moses what salvation means. Now for many people, many professing Christians that I meet, and maybe that you meet, Salvation means being saved from judgment and not having to go to hell. Right? I, 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 someone has taken my judgment for me and, and I don't have to. And that's all salvation means to them. For some people. That could be you here this morning. Is that all that when you hear about someone being saved, is that all that salvation means? Is that the biblical picture of what salvation means? No, it isn't, is it? It's partially the picture, but it, it's, it's only really a portion of the picture. And, and one of the things that the Old Testament people of God, the children of Israel, struggled with too, is that, well, they wanted to be saved, but they didn't want to serve Him. See, they wanted to live on easy street in this world and, and have all the comforts of the world and live like the world, but they wanted to have that fire insurance so they didn't have to go to hell at the end, see. Well, someone that thinks like that is either ignorant, untrained in understanding what the Bible teaches, or they could be unsaved. They, they maybe heard a message, but it wasn't the gospel message that the Bible teaches. Because 
Here in Exodus chapter 6, the Lord speaking through Mo- He spoke to Moses in verse 2 and says, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, verse 3, and to Isaac and Jacob, the, the uh, forefathers, the patriarchs. And I established my covenant with them, verse 4. And verse 5, I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. So he goes back to the original calling of Abraham. The promises that were made through the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, I remember my covenant and I see that. Now remember, if you go back in Genesis chapter 15, when God made that covenant with Abraham, the Lord said that his people would suffer in bondage for 400 years, didn't he? In a different land. And now here it is, he's coming to deliver him. So therefore, verse 6, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. That's part of salvation, isn't it? Redemption. Deliverance from bondage. Being redeemed, I'm sorry, from the judgments that are due to us that we have earned, merited, if you will. We deserve them. And someone's taking our place. But that it doesn't end there, does it? He says in verse 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That's personal relationship, right? And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And, verse 8, don't leave verse 8 out. And I will bring you into the land. So I will take you out, and I will bring you in. That's the gospel. I will take you out from bondage and judgment and uselessness to God and bring you in to the place of testimony and usefulness and fruitfulness for God. You see the whole picture there? And, beloved, there are people that may be saved, that we come into contact with, and I'm praying the Lord will bring some into our lives this week, that maybe we can express these things to and challenge them whether they understand this part of it. Because he says, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. And that's the whole theme of the book of Ephesians. It's entering into our spiritual heritage, our inheritance. Now, why is that so important to God, that they be brought into the land? I mean, after all, he took them out of Egypt. He could have just left them in the wilderness, couldn't he? They didn't have to cross the Jordan and enter the land. But God said, no, that was my plan all along, because I had planned to deliver them from Egypt so that I could bring them into the land. And why is it important that they be in the land? That they might be a testimony for God on earth. That He might put His presence there through the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And then that they, the people of Israel, might draw all peoples from every nation to the true God. 
See? That's the whole picture of what salvation means. And then there's glory after death beyond that. Likewise, you and I have been delivered from bondage to sin in judgment in order that we might be brought into the place of testimony, blessing, service, drawing people to God through our lives. See? Now, one of the things that we see right away here in the book of Joshua, and we've already seen it, earlier in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, that land happens to be occupied already. See, the Canaanite was in the land. And the Canaanite, as we see in chapter 2 of Joshua, through Rahab, she tells, she gives a testimony for the whole people of her city of Jericho. She said, we've heard about your God, that he's powerful, that he's sovereign, and we've heard that he's with you. And we are frightened because we know this land belongs to the Lord and he's going to give it to you. They knew that before Israel even got there. So why don't they just say, and so we need to get out and let you have it, right? But that's not what they do, do they? They fight to the bitter end against God. Which is the whole attitude of the Canaanite people, see, because Abraham had testified to them over 400 years before, and that's why the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorite and the Canaanite is not yet full. In other words, they continued, despite knowing the true God, through Abraham's testimony, they continued to oppose the true God for 400 years in some of the most wicked lifestyle that this planet has ever seen. A, a, a kind of thing that we're heading back to, it seems, in the days that we're living in now. But you read Le Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, and the things that were going on in the land of Canaan are horrible that human beings could descend to that level of lifestyle, if you can call it even life, death style. And that's the world, see? Lost people. People that you and I are around all the time. So they're going to oppose the people of Israel unto, to the death. And that's what we see in the first 12 chapters of Joshua. That's sobering, isn't it? That's how Paul talks about in Romans 7, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That even when people recognize they're sinners, they still won't bow the knee to God and ask for Him to save them. They're going to oppose God right to the end. That is satanic opposition to God, isn't it? And what do we read in Ephesians in chapter 6, about spiritual warfare there. We wrestle not with flesh and blood people, but with principalities and powers in darkness and in wickedness 
It's spiritual warfare and opposition. And it's opposition still to the purposes of God in His church. Meaning that you and I, if we want to be useful for God, we're going to find out that it isn't going to be easy, that there's going to be opposition, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be sorrows, there's going to be difficulties. So maybe we, we, we should just give up on it and do like the two and a half tribes and take easy street. Well, maybe, maybe that's what you've chosen to do. I hope not. That's up to you. Because God invites you to participate with Him. He wants it to be voluntary. He wants you to do it because you love Him. It's not mandatory. The two and a half tribes, they were saved. They paid a terrible price for being unwilling to enter the land. Now, I won't take you through all the verses because... I want to give you some homework, give you some challenge or things to look up yourself. But if you just start in Genesis with the promises to Abraham in chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 22, and work through the description of the land, the land never included any territory east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River was always the eastern boundary. You get to First Chronicles chapter 5, the whole chapter is dedicated to the two and a half tribes and what happened to them. Interesting study in itself. And we'll look a little bit at that tonight because that's in chapter 1 of Joshua. But we begin in verse 1. Now, I divided the first 11 verses this way. The command, the comfort, the calling, and the crossing. Or crossing over. So verses 1 and 2, the command... Verses 3 to 5, the comfort. Verses 6 to 9, the calling. And verses 10 and 11, the crossing over. And really, verses 12 to 18 is a special section of the crossing over dealing with the two and a half tribes. We probably won't get through much of that here this morning in the beginning because we've looked at a little bit of introduction. But let's read the first few verses. Chapter 1, Joshua, verse 1. After the death of Moses the servant of the Lord. It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, the children of Israel. Very specific, isn't it? Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon... I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. By the way, you see then the northern border of the land was in modern day Iraq, included Syria, the river Euphrates. That's way up there. They never got there, did they? All the land of the Hittites into the great sea toward the going down of the sun. That's the Mediterranean Sea. Going down of the sun is west, right? And the western border of the land was the Mediterranean Sea. Shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. What an encouragement. 
And we'll get to chapter 24 at the end of Joshua. And Joshua is alive near the end of his days. And what the Lord promised here, he achieves. Joshua has been victorious. The people have spread into the land against despite overwhelming odds against them. And the Lord is shown to be faithful, isn't he? As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I will not leave you. That's faithfulness, isn't it? And before you and I would ever dare to embark on the spiritual opposition that we encounter in our lives, we want to know that the Lord is going to be with us through this, don't we? We want to know that when things get tough, that He's not going to leave us or abandon us, that He'll be faithful with us. And that's exactly what He tells us in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, that He will, He quotes this verse, doesn't He? The writer of the Hebrews. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Beloved, those of you who have walked with the Lord for a period of time, can we not testify that this is true? Is there anyone here that, that can't, can say that the Lord has abandoned them? No, he, he is. More super abundantly beyond we can ask or imagine. And we've got to give Him credit for that, don't we? So be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. The land. See, the inheritance for them is a little different than the inheritance for us. The inheritance for them for them was the land with its houses that they didn't build, with its vineyards that they didn't plant, with the trees that they didn't cultivate. The Lord gave it to them as a physical, by sight, testimony to the world of His presence, of His reality. But now, in the age in which we live, the church age, we don't live by sight, we live by by faith, see? And so therefore, we realize that our testimony for the Lord doesn't involve land necessarily or houses or things physical so much as it does spiritual, the areas of the thought life, the mind. And that's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, are not carnal, but are mighty through God for the pulling down, the dismantling of strongholds. What kind of strongholds? Thoughts, he says. And bringing them captive to the obedience of Christ. And beloved, this is difficult. And all of us bring baggage to the Christian life, don't we? And, and that's why we, we, we want to see these young people, these children, get saved early. They're quoting verses, and we want them to get saved because the earlier they get saved, the less baggage they bring. 
The earlier, the later we get saved, the more baggage we bring, baggage of the old life, and and it's and it will drag us down. It'll keep us from being the testimony that God wants us to be. But there's still hope, isn't there? Greater is He that is in us than He that's in that world system, the devil. And every place the sole of our feet will tread upon, we can have victory in a spiritual sense if we will trust Him by faith and live the promises He gives to us. And He tells us how. And we'll look at that a little bit tonight. But going back to Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua. See, Joshua, you the torch is being passed on to you, the Lord's telling him. Moses is gone. Now, you had some great victories under Moses. You can read about them in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. I mean, they defeated Sihon and Og. They defeated the Amalekites. They had some great... The king of Arad came against them in Numbers 21. They had some great victories under Moses. But Joshua, Moses is gone. You can't rely on him. You can't rely on past victories anymore. You've got to carry the torch on for you. That's the same thing that Paul's doing to Timothy in Second Timothy, isn't he? He's saying, Timothy, the things that I passed on to you, now you pass on to faithful men, right? That they might do what? Pass it on to other men, right? That's discipleship. And everyone has said that all of us should have a, an older person, a Paul in our lives, that mentoring us, and should have a younger one that we are nurturing in the things of the Lord. Sisters with sisters, brothers with brothers, right? And the Lord wants us to participate in that. Are you doing it? Do you have someone like that in your life? Are you praying for that? When you get so selfish and self-preoccupied sometimes, we all were concerned about it, just ourselves and our things, and, and we forget about the big picture. And that's what God is reminding Joshua of here, isn't He? Saying, Joshua, this is a big thing I want to do. There's a big thing I want to do in this world, and I want to do it partly through you. Are you willing? Are you available? Are you surrendered? Do you want to join me in this? And by the way, beloved, if, if you don't want to do it, then there are lots of people lining up that want to take our place. <laughs> because there are people that get saved that recognize what a privilege it is to serve the living and true God. I lived for that old God before. The God of this world before I was saved. I didn't know better. Ignorant. Religious, but ignorant. And I am so thankful to be delivered from that. And I don't ever want to go back to that. Do you? Do you ever think about going back to that old life? Those of you who are younger. Larry Price was speaking 
I was able to get over to Slidell with the walkers, and, and he said, uh, he was talking, he was witness, witnessing to an older person and a younger person. He said, I focus most of my energy on the younger person. They've got more life, more years to live for the Lord. The older one, well, and that's true. If we if living according to the normal standards for how long a person lives, right? None of us knows how long we have. But the younger people, building into someone younger, that's so important. Moses, my servant, is dead. There's, <laughs> there's one other verse I wanted to go to over in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You remember Deuteronomy chapter 4? Deuteronomy is a fantastic book because we have the instructions. We have the instructions for how the life of victory is to be lived here in Deuteronomy, and then it gets worked out in Joshua all the way to Esther, see? They're living out Deuteronomy, and then when you get to the prophets, the prophets are calling the people back to Deuteronomy. They're calling them back to the covenant, see, that they had drifted away from. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we're reading here about how Moses uh, has, has, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Verse 23. And, and Moses has, has, Moses wants to see the land. You realize Moses never got to enter the land. He had heard about it. The spies had come back with their report. So I pleaded with the Lord at that time. Verse 23. Oh Lord God, you have begun to show, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. You've begun. Moses recognizes there's a lot more to this of your greatness, and I want to see it, and part of seeing it is going to be in the land. You've begun to show your servant this, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? Do you agree with Moses? Is that your view of God, the God that saved you? There's no God like Him on heaven or in earth, anywhere. And I pray... Let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. Let me go, Lord. You can just feel the drama in it, can't you? Have you ever prayed for something that you really wanted God to do and it wasn't happening in your life? Paul prayed, you know, three times for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. The Lord says, but the Lord was angry with me, he says to the people of Israel, on your account. And would not listen to me, so the Lord said to me, Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Enough. Don't bring this up again, Moses. Go up to the top of Pisgah. That's Mount Nebo, it's also called. I've been there. It's a, it's a great great view right on the eastern shore of the salt sea looking over the land and lift your eyes toward the west the north the south the east behold it with your eyes for you shall not cross over this Jordan Moses didn't get to do it see I think sometimes for some Christians there are things that we really think we need and we beseech the Lord for it, and we beseech the Lord for it, and we keep going for it. 
And eventually he will say, enough of that. Don't bring this up anymore. And Moses was not allowed to cross the Jordan. He was allowed to experience some mighty things from God though, wasn't he? So the vo- coming back to Joshua 1-2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, the very Jordan Moses wanted to cross but couldn't, wasn't permitted to. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them. It's a command, isn't it? Go over this Jordan. Now what does the Jordan mean? Well, there are different explanations you can read about in the commentaries, and we have to be very careful, I think, here of typology because we can kind of manipulate the Scripture sometimes with reading types in there that the Scripture doesn't validate. Now, I know it's interesting to think about that the Jordan River, because it is is pushed way back by the Lord up to the city of Adam, that you can picture it as the flow from Adam is stopped by the Lord and they're able to cross over. And when for us as believers was the flow from Adam stopped at the cross, right? But the place where we would expect an analogy to be drawn in Romans chapter 5, Paul never is led by the Holy Spirit to mention the Jordan River or anything like that. So, But there are principles here. The Jordan River at the time that they're on the eastern side of it, was at flood stage. Now, the Jordan River today is, it would be no problem to cross it. I mean, because, you know, the, Syri- I mean, the, uh, the people of, of, of Jordan are taking so much water out of the Sea of Galilee, and Israel's taking their drinking water to the Sea of Galilee, and, and the water that's left to go down to the Salt Sea is just a trickle compared to Joshua's day. But it was a mighty flowing torrent at that time. And you're looking over, you see Jericho across the Jordan River. But in between, you've got this river at flood stage. And, beloved, it's impossible, humanly speaking, to cross it with a million and a half people or so that they may have had there. And that's the challenge before them. It's going to take a miracle. And that's where we'll pick up, Lord willing, Tonight, we're going to work through some of these early chapters here in Joshua. But I want to just finish this morning with where we began. The privilege that's before us as children of God, children of the living God, redeemed, sanctified, glorified, called out, given a particular mission to accomplish for Him. And for each one of us, it's different. Is it important to you that you fulfill your mission before God? Is it important to me? That's the question. That's what I want us to be thinking about this afternoon. There's no one else that can fulfill your mission There's no one else that's been equipped like you for what he's called you to do. I'm not saying that everyone's called to the foreign mission field. When I say mission, I mean service for God wherever he has us. Because sometimes it's easier to serve the Lord on a foreign field somewhere where they don't know you 
than it is in the workplace, wherever you are, where they all do know you and where the temptations sometimes are more severe and it's more difficult to live the Christian life because of those temptations. But, beloved, it's still worth it. It's worth it because of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? He loved us and gave Himself for us. And that's our motivation to want to live for Him. So, Father, we thank You, O Lord, for reminders that You've given us from Your Scriptures here this morning. And help us, O Lord, as we work through these passages to understand, first of all, the instruction that You have for us and then to apply it in each one of our lives, to live it out that you might be glorified through us, that we might receive the fullness of what you have called us to do and to be. For the Lord Jesus' glory, he's the one that's made it all possible. We pray in his name. Amen.